Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Archives and Futures, a podcast for future generations. I am your host, Ivan Lozano. I use he, him, and they, them pronouns. And this season is a partnership between ANF and the DePaul Art Museum. We're calling it the Latinx American Podcast in honor of their exhibition, Latinx American, on view from January 7th through August 15, 2021. The exhibition features 38 Latinx artists from Chicago and beyond, 10 of which we will be interviewing for this season of the pod. The DePaul Art Museum's Latinx American exhibition and its accompanying programs like this one are provided through the generous support of the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts. Learn more about the exhibition and upcoming events at artmuseum.depaul.edu. And please share, subscribe, and rate this podcast so we can reach a larger audience. With that out of the way, let's get into the interview with Caroline Kent, which happened over Zoom on December 13, 2020. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Caroline Kent. I'm coming to you today from Chicago, Illinois. Um, I go by she, her. Um, I'm an artist and I wear many different hats, um, but for the most part, artist kind of sums up what I do, what I spend my time doing and how I think about the world. So awesome. welcome. Caroline, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk to you and I'm so excited also to get um, a little preview of what's happening in your studio there in the background. There's some uh, yeah. really nice colors and some big <laughs> works you. too. You work large. Yeah, my, uh, my scaffold that you can see behind me allows me to get pretty high up on the wall. So these paintings are about nine feet tall. So the ceilings are like 10 feet. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And then I also, you can see there's some smaller works that I've been working on as well. So I kind of fluctuate in between the two things, the two extremes. Nice. Do you, is there a, is there a scale that you prefer? Or do they sort of like live in the same sort of place in your mind? Smaller works and larger works? I get anxious. So which means I like to, I like to be working. Um, I prefer working on the large scale paintings. And when I get stuck on a moment or I need like a break, I need time to just think I'll do something smaller, but I have to keep working with my hands, you know, and I have, I like to keep figuring out um, the next move, the next step, how to make the images, you know, respond to what I've already laid down. So that's the way that's, that's the, easiest way I like to explain how I like to work. Nice. And your studio is right next to your home, right? Yeah, it's all in the same place, which is very, very convenient. That's so convenient. It has been, yeah, quite convenient, especially under COVID. So I, I literally do not leave the house even, I mean, I can go weeks. It's crazy to say that. I mean, I can- Well, you get a gold trash. star for that though, right now though. <laughs> that's, that's what everybody should be doing. So gold star for that now. Yeah, I mean, I should probably get out more and walk and stuff, but I, I, I do not get out as much as I could. Just, I mean, just for fresh air, I open the windows, but um, yeah, I stay put pretty much right here. So speaking of things of uh, staying put, um, you were born in Illinois, but not in Chicago. Um, what was it like uh, when you grew up? What were some of your sort of like formative, like aesthetic experiences where you were like, hey, I think there's something here about like visuals and colors and shapes that really attracts me to, to that. Actually, I think what really kind of platformed my imagination, I'll say, is that I grew up in a, in a small rural town, Sterling, Illinois. 
And I think in and throughout Sterling and also driving um, to Rockford, Illinois, or driving across Illinois, the open space, it's very flat. Um, it's a landscape I've come to appreciate, but there are definitely much more dynamic landscapes. Um, I have found that the flat landscape really provided a, a space for me to dream and wander across, um, driving countless miles growing up, riding in the car with my Walkman on, gazing out the window was really an opportunity to imagine, to dream, to find a space to just um, think like, what could life be? What is out there? And the possibilities of that. And I think that that is what I really tethered to the experience of growing up in a flat rural land is imagination. Nice. What was on your Walkman back then? Oh my goodness. Um, new edition. Nice. I remember that. I remember I got the cassette for Christmas one year and I played it over and over and over. It was, it wasn't even a popular new edition album. I think it was like you know, a B, a B album, but I loved it. Um, and then, oh my goodness, some really terrible things. Um, I think I, I borrowed some of my older sister's cassettes. So uh, in Living Color, that group growing up, uh, <laughs> Jody Watley. Nice, I love Jody Watley. Oh, I still love Jody Watley. Yeah, Sometimes I, I look back at her videos like, wow, <laughs> amazing. Underrated, I think. Totally. So when did you, how did you then end up in art school? So I think, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I went to Illinois State um, with two of my sisters. My oldest sister went to school at Western Illinois University and um, myself with my identical twin sister and my sister who's 18 months older, we received a track and field scholarship to Illinois State University. And so I ended up running for them for four years. And it was while I was there that I, I kind of had this moment um, where I found myself often hanging out with theater kids and hanging out with um, artists and being in the art building and visiting the gallery. And I think that's the first time that I was really exposed to art. That was the first time I, you know, I can't remember really times before that going into art galleries, although I had been to coffee shops that had art on the walls. And right. that was like my introduction, you know. Um, and I think I had been to maybe one of the museums, the Museum of Science and Industry as a child, but I think the gap in between that was large enough to where I didn't recall a lot of that, of what I, that experience. And so, visiting the gallery there, I started to recognize that there was a language operating in there that felt so profoundly fascinating um, that really moved me or seemed to speak to me. I think that was my, that was what really drew me in. And in my, late in the game, in my junior year, I switched my major to art with the encouragement and prompt from um, a grad student that was really a good friend, but also like a mentor. Yeah. And you know, it, it prompted me to just go for it and start my kind of introduction and quest to, to figure out what this art attraction was. Did that feel natural to you or was it, because especially coming from like an athletics um, background, you know, it feels like such a different brain, even though I don't think it really is because in the end, it's so much about like discipline and sticking with it and uh, and just sort of like, you know, sort of like working the muscles, you know? I think it's, it's still so really similar in the way that um, a practice happens, but what was that like? You know, it was the 90s. 
and I was in college in 93. So I was really around a lot of friends that were in the alternative music scene, artists, skateboarders, um, semi-punks, you know? And so I think that I always was attracted to, even in high school, attracted to things on the fringe, yeah. um, hanging out with friends that were not part of the dominant group. And I think that's partly because, you know, I was an athlete in high school and I think I wanted different experiences. Um, so it's not that I necessarily rejected the athletics right. or that kind of scene that it provides, but I always wanted something else. And so did my twin sister. And so always looking for things in, in different places outside of the mainstream was what I think was what pulled me there, but it also felt so natural and exciting. And I don't know, always something to discover. Um, and you know, you know, the nineties was, really about um, finding one's identity um, yeah. through culture and these yeah. different cultures. And so that was fun to kind of, you know, figure those things out, experiment, get introduced to, you know, when you go to college, you're inundated with all, you can be inundated with all kinds of new experiences, you know, lots of new music. So for me, yeah. it was like this, having access to this library of difference that was really exciting. That's exciting. And, and it, it's, it probably was even easier having sort of a, a, um, a wing person or your sister that your twin sister also sort of participating in that with you. Yeah, I like to think of like, I mean, I think at that time, thrift stores were just becoming like the craze. Uh -huh. And it was like to find old clothes, vintage clothing. I think like, I mean, one of the things that I recall about college was that I used to change my clothes all the time because we had so many clothes. And it was like, you know, you have uh -huh. an identical twin where you're just going through each other's clothing. And it's like one big, you know, uh, collection of all kinds of things you can wear. And I was like, wow, I just, I have the freedom to, you know, change what I wear <laughs> three times a day. I want to try something different. I want to try this now. It was, I don't know, very exploratory and it, it kind of fun. And what was the end of, a, of an arts education for you? Was there something that, um, do you remember, for example, like professors that really sort of marked um, a change in how you thought about, you know, aesthetics or art or specific like artists or bodies of work that really sort of changed your experience of, of what you were doing? Yeah, I, there was um, a professor at Illinois State, I think that I was really fond of. His name is Harold Boyd. Um, I believe he's still in Bloomington Normal. Um, and I haven't seen him in more recent years, although I'd like to, I'd planned to right before the pandemic happened. But I remember, um, and in, you know, he was, he was a drawing, my drawing professor. I was really hungry at that time. So I think that any kind of attention and input from a professor was really gonna have an impact. And I think he really, um, his investment in me as a young art student left a profound mark. And then I, you know, I moved back, I moved to Minneapolis after that and serendipitously, I ran into him on the street. He was there visiting his son. I had no idea he had a connection there and I was about to leave and go to the Peace Corps and I asked him, I said, what should I be making art about? And he was like, don't think about that right now. He was like, go and have these experiences and then you'll know what to make art about. And I kind of just tucked that away and I also found it like, like I said, really uncanny to have run into him at that time. Yeah. And it was true. I think that experience ended up shaping me and kind of laying a foundation for what kind of study 
I would be interested in later. I think that's such an interesting moment, you know, especially like in college when you're coming from a different place, you know, that happened to me when I moved here from Mexico and that sort of moment in college when you're like looking around for things and trying to sort of discover what has come before you. And little by little, you sort of start to see these sort of like breadcrumbs that lead you to, to where you want to go and how important, yeah, those mentorships are. Um, yeah. Was it in the Peace Corps that you really sort of started to develop sort of a voice or to sort of feel like an artist? Because I think that that's, that's another interesting moment when you start to sort of claim it for yourself and say, you know, I'm not just somebody that draws or paints or whatever, but I feel like that's like, I'm an artist. Okay, I get it. Yeah, I think there were moments, there were kind of things, I feel like I collected a lot of different things. Like in yeah. undergrad, I was introduced to um, Russian constructivism that kind of was tucked away. Um, I knew that I liked other languages. I would often, you know, a lot of my friends lived in the international building on campus. And so constantly being around other cultures, but yet um, there was something intellectually that wasn't um, maybe clicking just yet because I, I had to get out of context. I had to get out yeah. of my familiar surroundings for certain things to be kind of highlighted or accentuated against. And being in Romania, one, I think it was the first time that I was learning a language in the context of the landscape of where that language is actually living. Um, and I had, you know, growing up, my mother speaks Spanish. Um, so she would teach me some Spanish and I learned some Spanish, but it, a lot of it didn't click because I wasn't around it constantly. Yeah. And I wasn't, yeah, it just wasn't around me enough to speak it consistently. And so when I was in Romania though, all these different facets of being in a new context, um, looking at the landscape in contrast to my own experience growing up, um, there were certain things that just stood out to me based on where I was from and the experiences I had leading up to that. And learning a new language and grappling with that language and then getting that language embedded in in your psyche and becoming you know really fluent in that was really kind of foundational to how I started to think about how language operates in the world and then later would influence and inform some of the the ways in which I'm I'm interested in thinking about abstract painting nice and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's in Romania that's where you went for uh, Peace Corps Yes, I lived in Transylvania. I lived in um, a small, beautiful city called Alba Iulia. And I lived there for two years. And it was, you know, and, and Romanian does cross over with Latin. So, yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, Latin, yeah. yeah, and Slavic. And so it was this interesting mix of the two. So there was a kind of familiarity with some of the words I was learning um, and, and some of the structure of how yeah. I learned too. Did you go on your own? No, there was a group of 65 Americans, which is, that was scary <laughs> to travel with all these rambunctious American um, recent graduates of, you know, undergrad to go there. I think our group dwindled to down till around 50 because oh, wow. not everybody makes the full commitment yeah. or there's just different things that come up why one would potentially leave. And so our group dwindled, but some of those relationships um, I still have to this day. So it was a very meaningful time. But not with your twin sister? No, she went to um, Kazakhstan at oh, the wow. same time. So my poor parents were just like, where are you guys going? And why are you leaving for two years? Uh -huh. And you know, those places were very obscure because there yeah. wasn't a lot of information about them. And 
there was a lot of trust they had to have, which now I, when I think about my kids doing that someday, I'm like, okay, we're going to have a long talk before uh -huh. you go off to some of your countries in the world. So yeah. She was in Kazakhstan. Another difference with today would be though that like digital communications allow for you to sort of stay connected. Back then, you know, in the, in the, in the 90s, you know, or in the early 2000s, even, you know, the um, the ability that we have now to communicate a, a, across large distances and to sort of stay in touch wasn't there. It was so much more. That's different. right. That's so right. I can it was imagine how, yeah, it was a complete yeah. sort of change from, as you said, a change in context fully, where you have to sort Definitely. of look at yourself. What stays with you the most about that experience in terms of like art or colors or where do you see that influence most strongly in your work, do you think? I would say the palette I use is a lot of pastels. I mean, that's that was the first time I saw homes um, painted in a way that would never happen in the landscape I grew up in. Yeah. Nobody would paint their house pink and then mint blue, mint green you know, past these, these amazing chalky kind of dusty pastels that left a, a definitely like an aesthetic imprint on me, something that I always like to return to. And I suppose, you know, had I, you know, visited Mexico early on, something similar might've happened. So I don't think it's, I don't, I mean, it, it just reveals, I think, what my interests, where my influences come from, that there is um, an experience tethered to them. And I would say also some of the forms. Um, I found that a lot of the geometric forms of the buildings and houses, um, a lot of the homes were being just like either renovated or newly constructed. And a lot of times what unfortunately would happen was um, people would run out of money. And mm -hmm. so some of the buildings were left with like half roof or left in these interesting states of being not quite finished and almost done in the middle. And so I think early on that those um, architectural elements stayed with me. And I think they've translated more recently to thinking about like sonography or thinking about set design, um, not necessarily as a prop, um, but in some ways having this kind of sensibility that might invite one to interact with it or to consider it um, in relationship to the painting I make. It's interesting that you brought up also um, the sort of the Slavic culture and you know Russian constructivism a little bit earlier on. Um, obviously you know with like the very bright colors that's something that comes up and then also I, I see sort of the the a kind of almost like mirror opposite of like a um, like a Rodchenko painting or something where, you know, it's like a, generally on like a white background and you sort of flip that to mostly be on like a, a black background and having like blackness as like the, the, the place where you start your paintings that I find kind of interesting. Um, it seems like such a stretch from Illinois also and from uh, Sterling, but I guess there is that sort of that flatness of plane and that ability or that sort of call to, um, to be imaginative what's in, with what's in front of you that sometimes does play such a big part in abstraction, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think about that too, like what is it? And I think, I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I think that the landscape here provided me, I mean, this is gonna be a cheesy metaphor. It provided me the blank canvas. It really provided me an opportunity to really kind of think, okay, well, what, how do I wanna define my experience in this life? Yeah. And 
as opposed to just taking on the environment, um, which in some ways I do embody the, you know, being a Midwesterner here. Um, but I think it really gave me a kind of freedom to choose what that was and what it might look like. And I feel that growing up in my home, I felt so secure. I felt very safe. And that gave me the freedom to kind of look out and desire otherness, desire yeah. other kinds of experiences, other contexts and things like that. And so as I moved through life, I kind of just collected these different things that I felt were of interest to me or I felt I had a connection with. And I think that's what my work can show. Nice. And then you mentioned, you know, had you been to Mexico earlier in your life, that probably would have been a similar experience in terms of sort of uh, the experience of color or having that sort of shock. What was it like when you experienced, for example, I'm going to bring up a name, Barragan, because I know that's somebody that has sort of influenced also your Barragan. Yeah. What was that experience yes. like? How did, you, how did you discover Barragan and how did you start to sort of like think about his, 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 his work or his colors? Yeah. I mean, I came across him years ago um, looking up different, um, I don't know what I was doing, probably on a rabbit trail, you know, looking through things, but I came across his homes um, and I came across the way he dealt with color was really fascinating in and through his home. And it was always a desire to one day want to visit. Um, and it didn't become a priority until more recently. A year ago, I had the opportunity to visit Mexico City. My um, a girlfriend and I decided to travel there just to get away and kind of have a light vacation um, and not have too many expectations. But I knew that my mother had um, first cousins that lived there and right in Mexico City. And I was really excited to meet some family. So um, through a mixture of events, I decided to visit um, Casa Luis Barragan and it was fantastic. And what I found was, you know, moving in and through Mexico, um, I mean, I just, one, one thing about a place, when you go into a place and how you feel in that place, I felt um, like I started to understand things about myself that had been there all along, things about my mother that I had been in and around and understood. And part of that started to happen. I had just started, I had been teaching at UIC since 2017. Uh -huh. And at UIC, I had many Latinx, Latin students that um, I had the privilege of working with. And it was so cool because many of these students were Mexican and a lot of their artwork started to address the familial and things that happened in the home. I feel like that was started, that was like a forerunner um, to start pushing me on toward this um, experience in Mexico of making these kinds of identifications with things that felt familial, things that came from my mother's Mexican culture, um, things that I felt I inherited. Yeah. Um, and these are like, I don't, some of them are un, unnameable because of their sentiments or feelings I get, but there's also the way the poetics, the poetics of Mexican life kind of exist in Mexico. And there, there's certain things like from the way my mother's first cousin was making tostadas to how she was serving us, to the joke she was making, very chistosa. And I was just like, this is what I see in my mother. Okay, I see this in my mother. I saw this in my grandfather, Jose. I was like, okay, this is very fascinating, you know? And prior to a lot of these experiences, you know, I lived in Minneapolis and I didn't have, you know, the experiences of having, having so many students with yeah. a, um, 
that were Mexican. You know, I taught many different kinds of students, but this was so it was so rich here in Chicago that it is something I I, I mean I I think about like how can I be more involved or maybe I'll set up a, a I don't know a meeting group or something to continue these kinds of interesting dialogues that I used to have with my students. Did that feel like an awakening kind of coming into that side of your identity or, or sort of like meeting the sort of the ancestors on that side? Because you told me earlier, um, your dad is from Mississippi, right? Right. His family came from Mississippi in the Great Migration. They moved up north and they settled, his family settled in Rockford, Illinois. Yeah. So did it feel like an awakening? I think it... Um, yeah, there was definitely this kind of arousal with wanting to now connect with those parts more earnestly. Um, and when I think about aesthetics um, and the poetics, it, it led me to actually um, kind of solidify this work, Victoria Veronica, that I'd been wanting to do for a while. And this was probably out of the impulse to want to connect with my mother's side of the family some and so yeah it was a way to speak to just different things within the mexican culture that i witnessed growing up that i felt very comfortable with and i don't know so anyway i i started thinking about my mother's first two names victoria veronica as two different people and it seemed to make sense to place them into the bodies of identical twins because that has been my experience growing up. Yeah. But it also provided this great framework where these are two things that can speak back to each other, two entities, two, you know, the binary there felt like a, a space of freedom to play in two different spaces continuously. Nice. One of the things that I appreciate also about your practice that I kind of, and maybe this is just based on my references and probably is, but, um, in the way that you compose pieces. And I'd love to talk about that, how you use paper as you sort of like sketching. It really reminds me, for example, of like Papel Picado in Mexico, you know, the sort of the, the banners that happen where people with like little mallets mm -hmm. start breaking things up. And it also sort of ties in for Barragan for me, that idea of like negative space or things cut out and how sometimes you're not sure if something is in the foreground or part of the background that's been cut out. Um, and there's a huge sense of dynamism that happens with that, uh, that motion, it's almost like, it almost feels like movement, like experimental film movement, you know? It seems like these pieces are about to like keep moving around the, the, the canvas. Um, how did that process come up for you? How did you get to that? Is that something that um, hmm. sort of using the use of paper and cutouts? I think paper, cutting out paper for me is much faster to get a nice, sharp, clean, edge as opposed to drawing it. And I know that some people are totally tied to drawing and that's so um, satisfying. But for me, the cut is the sat is very satisfying because it gives me these sharp lines quickly. Yeah. And I think that the cutouts and forms, um, I think like an artist that had a, had, that I have to mention is like Ellsworth Kelly and thinking about um, Albers, Joni, or Joni, um, Joseph Albers and his wife, Annie, like thinking about early experiences in, in our, my, my studies and art and the influences there. And I think also, I think how 
cut paper and Russian constructivism and language all come together for me is that when I was first looking at Russian constructivism, mm -hmm. I was responding to the language as form, not as language, mm -hmm. because my impulse was de definitely emotive. It was not, what does that mean? It, and, if I, and, if it, and if I was asking, what does that mean? I wasn't asking for a literal translation. Um, and that early moment of looking at language as form and, and, and being so charged by it and I'm not understanding why or how that could be possible was I think the gateway into thinking about how these simple forms that I'm cutting out of paper can kind of be assembled and resemble a kind of pictorial language, um, yeah. assembled like a language. And so that's what I think that process, that's where it comes out of. I love that idea of like the pictorial language, especially when talking about abstraction, because there's uh, so often this idea that, you know, abstraction is like the removal of, um, of content or of, of, of language when, you know, for like almost everybody I know that works in abstraction, it's like almost the opposite. You know, it's not about removing context or removing language, but it's about obscuring it or adding to it. How do you feel about abstraction or whenever that term's applied to your work? I mean, these forms, I think how my work engages with abstraction is that there are things I have seen in the world. There are forms that have left impressions. There are, um, whether those are objects or architecture or spaces. And I think when I try to recall them, there is that's the moment of abstraction. It comes right in the recalling of this kind of information. And then I'm kind of inventing from that. Yeah. So, I, and, and then perhaps there's like layers of how things keep getting abstracted, but um, I think that's the most, poignant way that I think of it, like the experience itself and me trying to translate that into these forms is the abstraction. Um, and on the surface, what you're getting are forms that are kind of on their way to becoming other forms. Like I, I try to allude to that in my paintings that these forms are not static. They had yeah. a prior life and they're going on to become something else. So what you're seeing is something like caught in a moment. And because you can see these under layers of these other forms and how they had this prior life and, on, and that they're on their way. And I think that that is a kind of language for living, if that for makes sure. sense. Like yeah. that things are moving through time and space and maybe not always in a linear way, but they go backwards and forwards and sideways and diagonal in these other spaces. And then they're kind of conjured into a moment on the canvas and then fleeting, perhaps disappear after that. I'm always so fascinated to talk to other artists about, you know, the sort of the interior life of the work or if they see them as like some sort of like technology or like starting point or end point and how they sort of exist in the space after they're, they sort of leave the studio or sort of like when you're done with them. And it's, it's fascinating to feel, to hear that, that, that sort of like the idea of like multiple dimensions or portals or objects in between stages um, in your work. How do you know when they're done or what do you feel like uh, of the pieces, you know, after they sort of left your studio? Oh, after they've left my studio, they go on and live a different life. I don't know where, you know, where they're going to end up. But while they're with me, um, I think, you know, I work out of, because I'm so familiar with the forms I'm working with, I think I work out of intuition. And, mm -hmm. I, and in, sometimes the painting, I know that it has like, there's three more moves I want to make and then it's done. And then there are some that I could, some things feel arbitrary. Yeah. where I could add a little more or not. But I think that I am not so specific about that as this 
kind of moment that I want to capture that I'm not convinced will be ruined by adding two more little details to, mm -hmm. but the gist of it is that um, what I really kind of ambition toward with the work is finding the right kinds of forms and hopefully new kinds of forms. Um, and I, when I think historically, you know, abstraction or minimalism, even there were so many recognizable forms in that, you know, circles and uh, squares and rectangles and triangles, all these geometric forms that have names. Yeah. And I like to think about the potential of all these different geometric forms that don't have names or that have other kinds of names or have a history where the names are very different. And so in one way, I am interested in kind of inventing new kinds of forms that can have a kind of significant presence on the canvas, but operate very different um, than maybe what abstract painters, you know, um, earlier were thinking toward or considering. Nice. Um, I'm also interested in, in, in that idea of like the translation or transformation of forms into something new. Um, we've mentioned the twin aspect of the work and also these sort of like interior languages, you know, either um, Spanish where it was something that happened in the home or uh, Romanian that happened elsewhere. Can you talk maybe about that, about translation and transformation in your work? Do you think Definitely. about those things when you're creating um, new elements or organizing things? Yeah, and I think, so the twin work you're talking about, which is the Victoria Veronica, that for me was really exciting to think about when I when I made that exhibition um, earlier this year, because I was, I've been interested in like, what kind of framework could abstract painting operate within? You know, and so on these large, you know, giant canvases behind me, you know, they sit inside um, a space of black, a blackness. They sit inside not, and, and that blackness is supposed to kind of um, be a signifier for like the unknowable, things yeah. that are unknowable, a kind of context that we can't tether assumptions into. And I thought, well, where else can abstract painting, like what other way can we think about it and how else can I get it to operate? And so I started thinking of like, you know, twins and the twin languages they speak and the intimacy that is through a kindred relationship. And I'm like, what happens when this language that I'm producing occupies that space? And what could be the potential of the poetics there? And it opened up this other kind of um, materiality with the work. I, I started to work on book covers. I started to work mm. with furniture in the home. I started working with um, domestic objects and spaces. And that was really exciting because prior to that, you know, this language mainly stayed on canvas, on canvases in a very traditional sense, referencing painting. Yeah. But now this language then has transformed and reached over into the objects of everyday life. And it, it still carries this language. You still see familiar forms um, that have been that I've been producing over the last few years, and you still see those, but now they're on objects that are recognizable and that are familiar and that kind of speak to that speak in very different terms. And that's yeah. what I had really wanted a different set of conditions for this language to operate. And that language now, you know, as much as like some of the aims of modernism were that these large paintings were going to command space and that they were about, the surface quality and they were 
often tethered to ideas about um, being larger than life. I wanted to know if I could distill that and quiet that down, you know, and, and to, you know, to speak in humble terms or intimate terms or, you know, casual terms even. So it's been, it's been really fun to explore that. I think that's so interesting also thinking about the way that in like Romanian culture, but also in Mexican culture, those colors and those things do then end up on like, you know, the, the, the cookware or the plates or like the, 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 the sheets that you sleep on, you know, it's, it's that sort of language or that aesthetic sort of applied to everyday life. And there's not that division between like, you know, especially like in terms of formalism of like art versus life, you know, that's and that, right. it's, it's like, it's all part of the same thing, but mm -hmm. um, it is a difficult thing to get to in, you know, a sort of a formal artistic um, training, you know? Um, how did you give yourself, or was it difficult to give yourself permission to sort of expand beyond, this is a painting, I work in painting, to my practice is something that's expanded and can include all these other things? I mean, it took time to really give account for the decisions and choices I was making. I didn't, I didn't want to make a move without really justifying it in some way that it made sense. And it was really um, these different moments when I was started to think about like, well, what happens when a painting moves, um, when, when a part of a painting then gets made as a three-dimensional object that then hangs on the wall? I thought, what could be the connective tissue between those two things? And so I started titling the objects that were going on the wall, which were made of wood, but their surfaces were painted. So yeah. they kind of, kind of, you know, formally in between maybe a sculpture and a painting. But what I was more concerned about was how that making that could lead to something else. And so I, I started titling them movements that could be performed by the body. And that led to then having these things act as um, indicators for performance. And so thinking very specifically about moving from one medium to the next was more than just an active translation from one material to the next, yeah. but also the idea opened up that language that this, you know, our spoken language, English that we're speaking to each other right now doesn't operate where you say something and then an object manifests or a something manifests. And then that thing goes into something else, but maybe it does. And we just don't know it because we can't see the, the immaterial world, you know? So I, I thought of these things like how this language operates on very different terms and what it could tell us about itself. Because yeah. I was also learning along with the viewer, you know, um, what can we learn about this language? And then when the language moved from, you know, starting from a cutout form to a two-dimensional painting, to a three-dimensional object, then to a sculptural object, to a performance, it and then to almost an environment, I was like, well, there's probably a lot we could learn about this language and who wants to participate in it somehow, you know, as opposed to like a people group that speaks it, that then passes it on over the centuries. Um, this is, this language operates very differently and that's how it unfolded with the different stages of translation. That's so exciting because that takes it from a language to a dialogue or a conversation. And that also brings in other people as part of like the work of like activating it or making it sort of a, finish its goal or its purpose. Another thing that really that reminds me of is um, I love like magic, like um, <clears throat> not just like, you know, like stage magic, but like ceremonial magic and different magical tra traditions and sort of the importance of words and of language and of like, 
the intention behind actions or words that you use and how those have an effect in the world, which like, let's be real, that's what language is, period, you know, and it's just yeah. this idea of including the will of the maker or of the artist in the way that we express things to get to a specific point is sometimes a different relationship to language that you sort of are sort of trained to believe in in everyday life. Like language is power in a way, you know, and, and having those conversations is having an effect in the world in one way or another. So it shows, I, like, I like, yeah, like a real like, sort of like maturity or, or um, I don't want to use the word maturity. That seemed, that brings up a sort of a, a bad side to it, but it's uh, a uh, conviction hmm. that I think is really interesting in your work too. I like thinking about magic. I like thinking that somehow maybe I'm scratching the surface at these things actually telling, telling things to us that are getting revealed to us slowly, or maybe we won't know what they mean until much later. Maybe yeah. they'll be like, you know, epiphanies that the work ends up pointing to something more profound. Because I, I, you know, when you think about op, you think when you think about ancient languages, yeah. you know, those like they hold a lot of mysteries because we can't, we don't have all the answers present. And I think about that, you know, in some ways, I don't want the work to feel whimsical um, because I'm thinking about like, what is the potential of uh, a language that can operate outside of the constraints that the baggage that our spoken languages have? Maybe this language can get to places that other kinds of languages can't get to. And it can kind of because it's cloaked in a little bit of obscurity or total obscurity, but it has the face of familiarity, maybe it can do something really interesting in the world. Do you that's have your work or things that, and that come from your studio sort of hanging out in your home? I think that's always an interesting conversation of artists that include their work in their home versus those that tend not to. You know, I have these old paintings I made. They are they're mysterious. Um, they're, they're of these, they're like Ghanaian fishing boats that are casting nets on these Icelandic rocks. <laughs> there was a series of paintings I made um, a long time ago. And those, it's funny, th that work hangs out at home. They're like um, maybe allegorical or kind of um, surrealist in a way. And I don't necessarily hang out with this work because it stays in my studio. Um, yeah, I guess it's just like right next to your home. So it is still sort of a, um, a living I'm around studio. it all the time. Yeah. 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 I mean, my family sees it all. Um, the, yeah, my children see it. They recognize, yeah, they recognize now when they see things that look like what I'm doing or in the world. But yeah, in terms, I do, we, I do live with a little bit of my art at home. You brought up a point that I think is interesting to sort of go into a little bit more, but the idea of uh, resisting um, whimsy or resisting that reading of the work, which I think is really, um, it's an easy way to deny the seriousness of a work um, when that's sort of the first point of engagement that people sort of bring up in the work. Like even, you know, there is some work that is just meant to be whimsical, but it feels like a way of sort of like removing seriousness from it. Um, how do you keep going or what sort of allows you to push through those uh, weird readings that people might have about your work? Oh, that's funny. Um, how do I push past the weird readings? <laughs> you know, I think um, I was much more affected by maybe by the read early earlier on in, yeah. in my career, but 
now, I mean, it doesn't hold me back, but I will say that I think that a lot of the formal choices that I made were maybe in response to pushing against this idea that I didn't want my work to be whimsical because I did want to account for everything I was doing and to understand what I was doing and be able to articulate why that was. And I think part of it came through, um, you know, wanting to do, do different things as a painter. Um, yeah. I watched a lot of artist lectures by painters um, over the last, you know, five, 10 years. And what I found was this, I found that a lot of painters were not necessarily describing what their work was doing, but they talked a lot about ideas. And so I think to maybe, again, to, to go into the fringes of where maybe most painters might not go is to really consider um, or at least discuss publicly like what my intentions for the work are and what I see happening um, in that frame and why. So a lot of the choices and decisions I made were to push against, when I say push against whimsy, I wanted to be very decided. And I think that the marks and the things I'm doing seem decided. Right. Um, you know, the decision to take the canvas off the stretcher bars was a very decided and poignant thing. And so that people wouldn't maybe, so, so that people wouldn't go on the path of like, oh, this looks like, arbitrary or whimsical this seems like you did this very intentionally and I want to know why and I think that's more of what I wanted to elicit um you know with the viewer yeah what role does language have in your work other than you know I'm thinking of like titles and then also you know on your uh website there's text-based works as a sort of or essays and writing as a, a category and of course we've talked about the sort of the uh the visual language that you're creating but we've also talked about the context of language and how that sort of impresses um, feelings on you or, or, or an experience. How do you use um, English or Spanish or other sort of specific languages that already, that you're not yeah. inventing yourself? How does that fit yeah, into so, practice for you? So earlier the question when you asked me about like, how does, you know, growing up in a small rural town how did that influence maybe the work? And I would say that that didn't influence necessarily perhaps maybe the, um, the larger paintings, but there are the text-based works. And one of them are these works that I make with um, a typewriter and painting on paper. And so there's a few things happening in those works. Um, one is that I was really trying to think about a response to abstract expressionism and thinking about how as, a, as myself in the world, how am I questioning these things? So one of the things that I was struck with growing up was that here I have, you know, a Mexican mother, African-American father, both of them had different ways of speaking. Not only like, I'm not talking just accent, just speaking. I saw how my father spoke with his nine brothers and sisters and his parents. And like, he spoke differently out of all of them. I just noticed, I noticed accent. I noticed the word choice. I noticed so many things. And with my mother as well, um, a lot of her friends that she would bring in the home, they were speaking in Spanish or um, there was a way she spoke to my grandfather who I always, you know, when I spoke to my grandfather, I would go in between some broken Spanish and some English. So I would make sure he understood me. So I was always aware of how people were speaking. So when I first started watching black and white films on Ch uh, Chicago channel nine, I think it was growing up with my mom, I would ask her like, did people really speak that way? And these are films from like with Betty Davis, um, Catherine Hepburn, you know, from 30s up to the 60s. Like, 
I was fascinated by this performed language yeah. that I didn't understand how it operated in the world at that point. I think I was like 10 years old around that time. And so I was really curious about the, the performance of language. And so those typewriter works are kind of evoking a character that is on the screen and that is thinking about who gets to occupy um, these voices and the abstractions that are within identity and language um, and in personhood. And when something comes out of one's mouth, what, how does that abstract who is saying it? And I think, you know, that those were all the questions I had that I was looking to question in that work. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they feel diaristic at time or like quotations, but they're really an opportunity to, to just think about who gets to speak like that. Who do we think of, you know, when we hear those things, you know, and um, yeah, all that is in there. That's fascinating to me, that idea also of um, work being generated by a character outside of yourself or the sort of the freedom that that gives you. And that's come up a couple of times in some of the conversations mm -hmm. that I have. And it's definitely something that, you know, I, I, I take seriously in my work. You know, I always feel like I'm sort of performing the work. It's just sort of being channeled or coming through me. Um, and I think that's especially interesting with people that um, come from backgrounds that are no, not basically, you know, straight and white. Um, it's interesting how the, the sort of, I don't want to call it mental gymnastics, that has a negative connotation to it, but the way that we allow ourselves to, to make our mark in the world and to sort of manifest our idea, sometimes it requires that translation through, through somebody else so we can see it clearly sometimes outside of yeah. our own experience. I definitely agree. I definitely agree. There's a certain kind of, I think maybe it has to do with permission um, yeah. and yeah what well, you know when the lights aren't fully on you obscurity kind of allows for this um i think yeah too maybe just like giving yourself the permission yeah the, the, uh, to be vulnerable and to sort of express yeah. things that are maybe not seen as you know the the, the, the sort of the standard That's right. making things i guess yeah all of those things whether yeah language identity personhood experiences yeah all of that what has been the most exciting thing as you've moved into per, into sort of scores for performance or including um, other people in the work or expanding the way that you operate? Sort of the, the aims of, 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 of the work, the sort of the, the goal. Yeah, you know, when I did two of the performances I did, um, I think whenever I, I don't collaborate often, but when I do, I really look at it as an opportunity for both of us or both parties involved because, and I like to work with um, people that have something to really gain from the experience because it's new territory for me and it's yeah. going to be new for them as well. So when I um, did this, did the second performance, which happened at a space in Minneapolis called Company Projects, I worked with two, um, two women that had just graduated from the University of Minnesota that had backgrounds in dance but I told them right off the bat, like it was not going to be traditional and it was going to be maybe weird. And I didn't even know what it was going to be. And uh -huh. they were both excited. And so I think that was the qualifier. They were excited to do something kind of with some unknowns. And it was really great. And I think what I learned was that 
you know, this language being spoken through someone outside of myself is really fascinating. And to, that translation was really key to seeing what it could become um, mm -hmm. where I wasn't, you know, um, held back by my biases. It was unrelated to me, this kind of translation coming through and, and it was very exciting. Nice. Now I want to um, get into a couple of questions also that I ask everybody on these um, <clears throat> conversations. And we sort of talked about this a little bit earlier, so it might be, you know, sort of repeating it in different words, but what has been some advice that you received when you were younger or advice that you would give yourself when you were younger that you think would really sort of improve where you are now? And we mentioned, for example, your professor saying, hey, you know, you don't need to worry about what you're going to make. That'll come to you. I, that seems like such great advice. What do you wish yeah. you had earlier? Huh. You know, I feel like I, ha uh, you know, I, I don't know what advice would make me change my course or make me get somewhere sooner or make miss out. Um, Cause I feel like I had to go through everything I went through to get here. That's good advice. Yeah. I would just trust the path you're on. Like, I think there was the moment when when I decided to go back to grad school. Um, That's a hard choice that too. Maybe if I had been, if I could have talked to myself right before that decision and, or maybe, you know, I took seven years off from undergrad to graduate school. You know, that's a long period of time. And maybe I would have maybe prodded myself to do that a little sooner or um, introduce myself to certain things, but I don't know, they unfolded the way they did. And I think that I would have just told myself like something I told myself years later was like, play your strengths, go back to what you know. And I think this can happen for people where they're like, oh, I don't know what to do, I, you know, or even with an art, like, what do I do? What do I do? I'm always like, go back to what you know what you're good at, what you're strong at. You gotta look at all those things and then go toward that. And I, and I found myself, I did that years later, but I think had I gotten that message a little sooner, um, I could have you know, trusted my instincts a little stronger. That's really good advice. Uh, yeah, follow what makes you happy and what you feel comfortable or not comfortable with, but the things that excite you. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great piece of advice. Now, another question. Um, this has been a mess of a year. Um, with so much, you know, so many difficult things happening between, you know, the pandemic and, you know, everything that's happened with uh, a lot of the, the sort of explosions of race in um, racial um, um, violence. Violence, yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's I always mean, been there, there was, but I would say maybe like the, the, the is, of some people about it and then how bad it is. Um, yeah. Has this year changed how you think of like your work or the art world or, um, or how you want to keep moving in that or operating? I think one thing that it has slowed me down to think is mm. about that I've just spent more time thinking about and maybe because I've had the time. Um, but I think about inheritance. I think about what I have to pass on to my children. Um, and if, it, and if, if I hadn't had children, I would be thinking about my siblings. I would think about my family. Like what is, you know, and I, I do think in broader terms too, like what will, what do I have to pass on, you know? And I think 
you know, in this country and historically, you know, equity, land, money, those real tangible things that you can actually build a life out of um, are what, what people have found valuable to pass on. And I've been thinking more in this pandemic that the kind of inheritance I want to leave behind for my, for my children to see and for others is maybe work ethic and how you treat people and the things that my, my kids are going to see in the home. Um, yes, they see me making weird paintings, you know, mommy paints and okay. Yes, there's that, but there's so much more in terms of what is going to be left behind in, in my actions and what I say and what I do and how I did those things. That kind of, um, that is what I've been really pondering in this moment. And not necessarily to do something great with that, like I'm not going to be James Baldwin, you know, but I'm gonna be a person that I had an impact on a child's life yeah. that I can then leave an inheritance in those ways, a deposit of, of my actions and our beliefs and 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 how we move in the world and um, the kind of conversations that I have with them and talking about what is going on in the world today and how to operate in opposition to the erroneous nature of what's going on outside our doors. So, yeah, that's yeah, the kind of inheritance I think about and, and, that's, and so forth. Yeah, that's so important to really sort of not just to consider, but to very consciously claim and work towards, you know, that's a, the, uh, leaving a, a, you know, a legacy or, or um, an inheritance, as you mentioned, is an active, you know, it's, a, it's an active practice. It's something that we have to sort of work at. Otherwise, you know, what are you doing if you're just not active in your life, right? But I think that, yeah, yeah that's such a beautiful, uh, a beautiful lesson to, 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 to gain from this mess of a year. Um, now, what are you excited for in 2021 to end on a high note? And I'm also going to ask you what your favorite Mexican food was or your favorite thing in Mexico City, but that's part of like the, that's a separate thing from like the full question. So <laughs> let's start with that one. Let's start with that one because I really just want to go back to Mexico. I'm just something, I'm, I'm feeling wistful. Uh, Tell me more about like your experience in Mexico City. What did you, you know, I, what I loved was that like nobody ever told me how, how many vegetarian and vegan places exist in Mexico, like the food was such a wide, vast range. It was amazing. It was just amazing. Um, you know, I, I, being inundated in American culture, I mean, you're liable to think that there's only tacos and burritos there. And it's like, wait a minute. No, I didn't even eat. I don't even think, I think I had street tacos maybe one time. But, but then I think they were tacos with um, cactus in them. You know what I mean? They weren't like here. So I think that was the most fascinating part. Um, I went to this um, temple and had lunch at this vegetarian vegan restaurant. It was amazing. They were Hare Krishna. And oh yeah, I used to do that when I was in high school. Yeah, that was one of my favorite things to do on weekends. <laughs> I was just like, this is amazing. The food was like, you know, all organic and yeah. beautifully presented. It just, it was amazing. I had some like pumpkin um, soup it was just wild because I really went with very little expectations. I wasn't necessarily thinking about food going there yeah. um, because I had experienced so much of Mexican food growing up and things. And I understood some, but I felt like I learned so much more in terms of nopales and the tacos and eating the, 
I mean, I saw some amazing things. I don't even know what the food was. I was on my way through the, um, through, oh my goodness, I'm going to forget some things, through this, um, the park that's on the yeah. way to the castle. The <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God, and what a place. There was a woman cooking for a large group of people. They're all waiting in line and she was taking something and putting it in this huge leaf thing. And I was like, mind blowing. What is this? And I was, you know, if I had had more time, I could have stayed and tried it, but it was all vegetarian and it looked amazing and smelled great. And yeah. Once so, we're able to go outside, I'll take you on a tour of like the few places in Chicago that I know that have like sort of like vegetarian slash vegan slash different Mexican food. Cause there's definitely a few and there's so much fun. I would love that. That's great. Now, and I need to learn how to cook that. There you go. Now, other than, <laughs> other, than, <laughs> other than our prospective Mexican food date, in, what are you excited for 2021? Well, I'm excited because I'm going to, I'm curious how, um, I have some solo shows coming up for 2021 and I'm curious what I'm going to do. I'm curious <laughs> what I am going to do because I'm starting to wonder, like, you know, being an ex-athlete, I was always so unnerved by having to perform, you know, in it, perform when I didn't want to, it was like, okay, you're at the, you're at the meet, you have to do this now. Yeah. And, you know, I was always pushing myself. So I feel like in some ways, this is very similar. Like, what am I going to make? I don't have the work made yet. There are some, some loose ideas I have, but I'm really fascinated to see what is going to happen as opposed to being totally terrified or scared or nervous. I am kind of excited to see what am I going to produce, you know, next year, that's going to kind of give back to me because one of the ways I think about exhibitions is that um, I think for a long time, I thought of exhibitions were something I did for others to see the work. And I didn't necessarily look at them as opportunities to really gain in my practice and study for myself. Like this is the moment where research is actually just public, but it's also yeah. public for me because in my studio, I can't get everything to, to, to be in a space together without right. it you know, it's crowded in here and there's too much noise, but the exhibition is really for me to gain from in terms of what I'm learning in my practice and how I can build on that and learn from it. So I'm really excited to see what comes of it. Well, I can't, I can't, I can't help myself. I have to ask you another question, but what, when you're in that position and you have to sort of like perform or sort of keep going and you just don't want to, you just want to go take a nap or play with your kids or whatever it is, where, where do you get the energy or what sort of gets you through that? Do you have rituals or, or a specific thing that you do? That's, it's a hard question because I think I, when I had my first child, which was six years ago now, I think I was faced with that a lot. Yeah. And I learned to just work. I learned to work under a different set of conditions. Um, prior to that, it was like, I worked when I wanted to. I worked when I felt inspired. And if I didn't feel like working, I put on some music, drink some coffee, linger over a book, look out the window, think on something. But now because of time um, and also these different opportunities that come up where there is a time frame you need to work done, I think I, I have to push through and I just have to go and make moves. And if those moves are terrible, then I have to make other moves to make up for them. You know, I have to keep pushing. You just have to, I just have to, or I will totally get stuck. And that's normal for artists to get stuck and be like, what do I do? But I just push, I push through it. I just push. That's a great place to end this conversation on. 
Caroline, thank you so much. I had so much fun talking to you. I did too. So good. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, uh, we'll catch up with you. Uh, there's a lot of stuff coming up, as you just mentioned. So a lot of opportunities for people to like engage with your work and to think about it. Um, yeah. Thanks for thanks again. I love this. Sounds great. Take care. You too. Bye bye. All right. That is our interview with Caroline Kent. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Before we leave, some thanks to Natalie Murillo, La Spacer, for our theme music. Go check her out at laspacer.com. Archives and Futures, a podcast for future generations, was produced, recorded, researched, and edited by me, Ivan Lozano, in Chicago, Illinois. Check out my work at ivanlozano.net or ivanlozano.studio on Instagram. And thank you for listening to episode six of this podcast. And until next time. Thank you.